Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Cleopatra's Bling travels around the world, meeting fascinating creatives, craftsmen and women, and cultural experts to inspire our artisanal collections. This podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring traditions and practices from the past into the present. One subject that I always encounter in the world of gems and jewellery is astrology. The sun, the moon and the stars are images that come back year after year. So for this first episode, we're talking with Laura Plum, Vedic astrologer. Laura is the founder and director of Veda Wise, a training and coaching program dedicated to Vedic astrology. As a coach, trainer and lecturer, Laura combines Ayurvedic history, culture and knowledge with health and wellness to help people better cope in the modern world. I spoke to Laura about the tradition of Vedic astrology, how it's been transformed since its ancient beginnings and why astrology has gained in popularity in recent years. Enjoy. Hi, Laura. Hi, Olivia. It's good to be with you. So first things first, how does one become a Vedic astrologer? What drew you to this ancient tradition? I've always been curious about it. I lived in London for, for most of my 20s and first half of my 30s. And there, you know, there was a lot of genuine interest and respect for the astrology. And I began reading and learning more about it. This was Western astrology. And it wasn't until later after I was practicing yoga and learning about Ayurveda that I met a Vedic astrologer. And we're talking now about maybe 15, gosh, no, maybe almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. And I was so blown away by the fact, by what he told me, particularly by the fact that he had my sun in a different place. He had my rising sun in a different place. He has my moon in a different place. And so then I just started reading everything I could, come to learn that I'm actually Taurus rising, Scorpio moon, and Sagittarius is my sun sign. So that's why I related so much to Sagittarius. and. Um, and not so much the Capricorn. And that happens a lot when I, and I do readings with people. A lot of people will say, oh, it feels so liberating. You know, I felt like I was a square being pushed into a, a circle. So I do find that a lot of people feel that way. They feel really liberated by Vedic astrology because it is identifying where the sun actually was when they were born. And that might not only change, you know, three quarters of people are going to have a different sun sign. Three quarters of people are going to have a different moon sign and they're going to have a different rising sign. And the rising is your outer self, the sun is your innermost self, and the moon is your mediating self, your mind, your perception, and your emotions. So it, it helps to have it be precise. And I was so fascinated by the fact that we are the stars and the planets come alive, and that pattern of light and energy. And I used to just love as a kid to lie down on the grass at night and watch the stars and watch that twinkling, and just to think that that we're in a deep and direct and important relationship with that. That to me is beyond exciting. So before we get into more complicated aspects of your work, let's cover the basics. What does the Vedic in Vedic astrology mean? Well, it comes from the word Veda and the Vedas, Veda means science or knowledge. It's a body of knowledge or a system of science. Ayurveda is as an example. More and more people are learning about Ayurveda, and that means, Ayu means life or longevity, and Veda means the science of that, the science of life and the science of longevity. The Vedas, the original Vedas, are a body of knowledge that teaches us how to be the best human being we can be. 
And Jyotish is one of the Upavedas, meaning a supportive Veda, a supportive science, to help support us on our path towards self-realization. So how does it apply to astrology? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> so first let's start with the, the Vedas. The Vedas the Vedas are said to be four books that are the, you could say, the description of life and prescriptions for how to live a beautiful, balanced, and what I call sacred, sumptuous life. And the oldest of the Vedas is the Rig Veda. Uh, it's said that the Vedas were cognized, or we like to say downloaded, by seven rishis, or seven seers, seven enlightened beings, who, just like the rays of light, they were able to see the light of life, the light of consciousness. And then through the scripture, but basically through chanting and through oral transmission, they were able to pass that along. The Rig Veda being the oldest has this great line that I love, Yata Pende Tata Brahmande, which means in the individual is the collective or in the personal is the universal. In the atom, in the smallest thing is the cosmos itself. And that all of us are a replica or a replication of that first spark of light, that first intention of consciousness, and that we all carry within us the pattern of the universe itself. So to be a Vedic astrologer is to be somebody who's coming from that perspective, that when we look at the sky, we're seeing a pattern of energy and light, and we're seeing that that human being who was born on that day at that particular time is the coming alive, is the replication and the expression of that pattern of energy and light that came into being for that one split second. So it's a spiritual science. It's a supportive science to the prime Veda, which is the science of self-realization, often called yoga. And it's a way of, um, it's a way of peering into the sky and peering into the stars and seeing the essence of you. Wow, that's super interesting. It sounds though like there's a lot in common with what we would call Western astrology, the zodiac and the star charts, but how is Vedic astrology different? So the star thing, star signs mean the same thing. Um, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot that's different. So we talk more about the planets than the stars. I'm more curious when I look at a chart to see where Jupiter is, where's your moon, where's your sun, what's your rising sign? And the rising sign, of course, sets what house those different planets will fall into. So we think of planets, think of the planets as bouncing the light of the sun. And in that way, you could say, say that the planets are like rays of light. And they are like that. Mercury is bouncing green light and Jupiter is bouncing yellow light, right? And so then we're looking at how the spectrum of light is showing up in you and through you. If the planet Jupiter is very strong, then you're going to have a lot of good yellow light. And we would talk a lot about what that means. So the signs are there, you know, let's say Jupiter, for instance, has just moved into Sagittarius. So I've been talking about that a lot lately. Sagittarius is fresh on my mind. Sagittarius is still the sign of the philosopher. It's very big pictured, um, broad-minded. Sagittarius is a bon vivant. The symbol, the symbols are often different between the two sciences. And yet I think the symbol of the centaur, the half man, half horse, is very appropriate for Sagittarius. It's that person who's seeking to pull themselves up out of their animal self and with the bow and arrow pointing towards the sky, the bow and arrow, excuse me, the pointing towards the sky, you know, the Sagittarius is very idealistic. They're very upward looking, very positive and sunny. Um, but then I suppose the difference is we're, we're talking more about 
what planets are strong in Sagittarius. And if you have a Jupiter, if you're born with Jupiter in Sagittarius, I think we're more fascinated by that. How's your Jupiter going to help you? How's your Jupiter going to express through you? When is going to be a good time for you to do Jupiterian things? So that's another, I think, important distinction. So how would you apply Vedic astrology in your daily life then? So how you would use it, I would say there's two ways to answer that. One is once you learn what your chart is, then you know where what your strengths are. And you can use mantra to boost your strengths. You can use mantra or certain practices to um, even accommodate or remedy planets and things that might not be as strong. Um, and so that's a daily thing. That's certainly something you would do every day. You can wear a gem to balance out the strengths and the, I don't like to say weaknesses, but the challenges, let's say, that's in the chart. Um, but the other thing that I like to do is I like to think about the days of the week as um, themed or representing each of the planets. You know, we we have seven, you, you could say, knowable planets. And by that, we mean these are the planets that we can see with the naked eye. And by that, we're also including the sun. So sun, moon, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. And that's those are the days of the week, right? We have, especially if you speak a Romance language, you'll be familiar with this. We have Sunday, the day of the sun. We have Monday, the day of the moon. We have Tuesday, the day of Mars, or Martedi, as you just lived in Italy, or Mardi. Um, so that's Mars' day. Mercury is Wednesday. Jupiter's day, Jupiter's called Guru, or in Rome, they called him Jove. So Jovidi, right? That's Thursday. And then Friday is Venus's day. Right? You can see it, those of you who know Romance language, you can see this root. And then Saturday is Saturn's day. So you can also, you know, Geotish has ideas for us to really kind of cultivate each planetary energy according to the day. You can wear the color of that planet. You can do things like, for instance, on Saturday is a day to feed the elderly or feed crows. The crow is a symbol of Saturn. On on Sunday, it's a day to wear orange. It's a day to celebrate life. You know, it's a day for sun salutations or sun mantras, Gayatri mantra. Um, Mars is a day for transformation or fire, a day to cook a day to cook your own, you know, ego maybe to transform it into something else. Moon is a day we say either on Monday or Thursdays we can fast because Monday is moon day, Thursday is Jupiter's day. Those are kapha planets, so they're expansive and heavier and nourishing planets. And so those are good days for fasting. We'll have more energy to properly fast. So those are just some ideas. That's so fascinating. The approach is so different. So what kinds of predictions does Vedic astrology make? And are we sort of subject to the planets or can we work with what the planets communicate to us? We can predict events. Family, children, marriage. I mean, it takes quite a studied, erudite, practiced practitioner. It's not something that you're going to learn in year one or two or even three. You're going to, it, just, Vedic astrology takes a very long time to learn. There's a lot of complexities to it. Um, but it can be known. It, it, we, one can make that prediction of um, when to start a business, when you're going to be more successful, when to expand, when to contract, when to get married, when you're going to meet your marriage pa- partner. 
yeah, more or less within, depending on, you have to really know the time that you were born, but more or less within a day or two of, of accuracy. And that depends. It depends on the, on the, on the practitioner because it is a lot of interpretation. I mean, it's accuracy because we're looking at the exact place where the planets are and how the pattern of the planets in the signs in that part of the sky are going to work with your particular chart and what Dasha period you're in. There's a lot that you're factoring in that is all math and science. But then the magic comes from how you're interpreting that. And that's the art of it. Speaking of that art, what are the tools you'd use to make those predictions aside from your birth time? Uh, yeah, so obviously we need the birth date, time, place. Um, and then I have software that calculates that for me. In the old days, they would do all of that through these long and involved mathematical ca calculations. And then I also... You, one thing that's interesting to do is a prajna chart, which is to, uh, if somebody asks a question, you can run the chart for the time at which they ask that question, um, which can also give you an added layer of, of help. And by the way, we're not just looking, when I look at a chart, we're looking at the natal chart. That will also give us, we can also then look at the current transits and the transits over the natal chart. I can also look at the dasha periods, which is what planet is sort of ruling that person's life right now, what secondary planet, even what tertiary planet, but there's a, the dasha and the bukti, so the main planet and the minor planet. And then we can also look at these divisional charts. The D9, for instance, the ninth divisional chart is called the navamsha, and it gives us a look at the person's soul, that reincarnating soul that is reincarnating through a couple of lifetimes. If there's similar planets in the natal chart in the D9, then that means that person really is, that's really strong. Those planets are very, very strong for that person. Um, and we can look at different divisional charts for different subjects, wealth, marriage, children, etc. Um, and then we can look at others. There's something that's a Rudha Lagna to help somebody understand better what their right career would be. Um, so there's different, there's a lot of different tools within casting the charts themselves. We cast a number of charts in order to, and the nakshatras. So we also have something unique to Jyotish that is not there in the Western, I don't think, which is nakshatras. So while we have 12 signs, we have 27 nakshatras. So that means that in any sign, there's deeper layer, there's two to three nakshatras. And nakshatra means that star or the area in the stars. And so within the sign, you can get even deeper by looking at the nakshatra. And the nakshatras give you a lot more, I would say almost soul depth, a lot more of the intimate uh, understanding of you. Okay. So these nakshatras, what do they tell us about our personalities? There's different categories of nakshatras, one being devic. On the other side, there's rakshasa, which is demonic. So if you know that most of your planets are in devic nakshatras, then you know you're a pure being, let's say. And um, But this might explain why you don't play the game the way others play. It, does, it might explain why you get disappointed in love. Because you're so pure-hearted that you're not going to be lying or deceiving or selfish or materialistic. I think that's also very, very helpful for people to see. I'm curious, do you also use gemstones in your work? So... In the beginning, I was saying that we have spiritual tools, you could say, for helping 
with places in the chart and one's natal chart where there may be challenges. So if there, place, there are places where we can see certain karmas, then we have remedies. Now, the most important thing to remember is that we are consciousness chosen, who's, we are the consciousness that's chosen to come alive as the individual human being. And so the effect is to basically bring in more light and we can bring in more light through gems or we can bring in more light through the use of mantra, which helps to enlighten the mind. And so gems, basically, the understanding is that they've sort of, you could say, received the light or they hold the light of a certain planet. The emerald holds the light of Mercury. And I guess a way to look at that is that the makeup of emerald you know, what is emerald actually made from? So obviously after thousands of years of pressure, certain kind of minerals were pressed together in order to create an emerald. And those minerals are similar to the minerals and the, the gaseous chemicals and things that you're going to find on the planet of Mercury. So when you wear an emerald and the clearer it is, it's supposed to have no occlusions, right, etc. You can see right through, it's a very beautiful gem. It's going to help to, you could say, refract, both invite in and refract in the energy of mercury. And then you wear it on a certain finger, and for mercury it's the pinky, and that corresponds to a certain um, meridian line, right, a certain marma point and certain energy line in the body. And all all these fingers, these lines of energy go to the heart. So it's going to kind of feed and nourish and communicate to the intelligence of the heart and bring in more of, let's say, Mercury's benefits. Now, what does that mean? Mercury is a planet of intellect and communication. So if Mercury, but it also relates, Mercury relates to the nervous system and it relates to skin. And then depending where Mercury is in your chart, if Mercury is in the, in or rules, let's say the house of marriage, then it's going to relate to marriage, but that's going to depend on the individual chart. So we would strengthen Mercury if we want, if somebody has a, a hemmed-in Mercury or an, a, a negatively afflicted Mercury, or if it's in a malefic house, so that we can you know, help them improve their skin or help them improve their nervous system or maybe to help them with their studies, but also to help them if it is uh, the planet that rules or is in their seventh house of marriage then it's going to help with marriage. So, and that's true for any gem, right? So yellow sapphire for, for Jupiter, diamond for Venus, right? No wonder we wear a diamond on our left hand on the ring finger. That is actually a practice that comes directly out of Jyotish. People can tell me they don't believe in Jyotish. Oh, well, why are you wearing that diamond on your ring finger? <laughs> Venus is a feminine, considered a feminine planet. The left hand is feminine. The ring finger is the finger that the diamond should be worn on. If you're a man, you can wear it on your right hand, but it should be worn on the left hand for a woman. Diamonds go on the left hand. And also, by the way, as you know, the back of the, the setting should be open on the back so that the way that the stone captures the light, it will actually, you know, the light can kind of pour through the stone so it doesn't hit gold but it can actually, the setting or the stone itself can actually touch your finger. So gems are very, very important in Jyotish. Like I said, even all the greatest scientists, <laughs> maybe not all of them, but the great, many of the greatest scientists in India wear them as well for, for benefits. 
Okay, so it seems like you're saying that the gems have positive properties, but I'm wondering, can there also be some negative properties? You know, all these Vedic sciences, you could say, are the sciences of it depends. Everything depends on the individual and the individual chart. Effectively, a way to look at that is there's two camps of friends. And I like to, I like to say it's a little bit like high school. So one camp of friends is Mercury, Venus, and Saturn. And another camp of friends is Jupiter, Sun, Moon, and Mars. And basically, depending on your rising sign, the sign that's on your rising sign, the planet that rules that sign, you've got to stick with the planets that are in the same camp. And the other planets and their gems can be malefics for you. They can be have negatives. So what that means is, if you're born with Gemini rising, just to stick with Mercury, Gemini rising is ruled by Mercury, and so emerald is the stone for you. But if you've got Mercury in a malefic house, you can't wear it. Right? So it depends. It depends on where those planets are. If they're in negative places, we can't wear that, even if it's our rising sign. The other thing is that Mars is a malefic planet. So for anybody who's ruled by Mercury or Venus or Saturn, you definitely don't want to be wearing Mars's stone because not only is he a malefic, malefic planet, but he's in the other camp. So he's going to be really malefic towards you, right? So it just depends. It depends on which camp your rising sign falls in. And then it depends on what planet, what sign, sorry, what houses those various planets rule. Even if the planet is in your camp, your friend's camp, if the planet rules a negative house, you can't use it. I, mean, I just had a client the other day, it was very hard to find her a stone because all the friends in her friend's camp were in malefic houses. And so we can't use them because then that could actually invite disaster or invite enemies or even provoke um, disease, which I don't like to talk about. I don't like to bring up those ideas because that just plants that in people's minds. But... Um, yeah, we, I think we have to be careful about what stones we wear. And the main stones we have to be very careful with are Mars and Saturn's stones. So Mars is uh, coral, which we shouldn't wear anyway because it's endangered, but also bloodstone. And then for Saturn, it's the blue stones. So it's blue sapphire, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and whatever else you can think of that's blue. I'm sure you have many more, but those are Saturn's stones. So unless you absolutely know that Saturn is a good, positive, supportive planet for you in every way, we should be careful with those stones. So I'm curious to hear what you think about astrology becoming trendy. I mean, it's everywhere. There are apps to follow your daily horoscope and memes on social media about different star signs. And we're even seeing it all over jewelry designs. Why do you think people are so interested in the ancient tradition of astrology these days? <laughs> well, it's 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 genius. It's brilliant. I think people are wanting help in in living life in this modern world. You know, what is Wall Street now has this term that the world is, and I forget the acronym, but let's see if we can remember it. It's the world is accelerated, chaotic, unpredictable, and vacuum, volatile, volatile accelerated, chaotic, and unpredictable. And in that kind of a world, we need tools to help us to stay grounded, to stay in our body. But it's also a time when, you know, more and more people are growing and, and growing mindfully, and maybe more and more people are meditating or taking yoga. And so they're they're learning, and they're learning more about 
the mind and how the mind works. They're learning more about um, their own neurology and their own nervous system and how to condition it. They're learning about health in new ways. Or, you know, and the final thing that I see a lot and I think that is really essential here is that as we look at the major issues of our time and we look at global protests around climate change, we are looking for solutions. And actually Ayurveda is a solution. Jyotish is a solution. We can come back to the land and we can come back to nature. And if we come back to nature, if we grow, Greta herself just said, grow more trees. That's one of our solutions to climate change. Grow more trees, grow more of your own food, move more in sync with the rhythms of nature. And actually, if you understand yourself in a world, you know, in a world where we go to school and we're in class sizes of 30, 40, or 50, everything is so standardized. Medicine is so standardized. And yet we are not shoeboxes, right? We are not standardized beings. We are each uniquely individual. And that's what I love about Ayurveda. It's a personalized medicine. It's a unique approach to your health and your wellness. And that's what's beautiful about Chiyotish is it's taking you out of the box and it's saying you are wholly unique. Now let's look at that. Let's explore that. And let's see how we can really support that so that you can be the radiant, unique, extraordinary being you're meant to be. Somebody said to me recently, isn't it amazing that we have Chiyotish? Isn't it amazing she said that we have this tool that someone started this whole thing and taught this to the world. And you know, more than that, what we have is somebody who understood that the world is in you, that you are the coming alive of the cosmos, the unique pattern of light and energy. So it's not like somebody taught us a new thing. What we're learning through Jyotish is Yata Pende Tata Brahmande. We are the expression of the universe itself. And the more that more of us come alive, the more the world comes alive. We are here to creatively and consciously participate in the unfolding of consciousness. And the more that each of us awaken to our true essence, our true powers, our true gifts, the more all of us together help to unfold the creative consciousness that unites us back into the whole, that radically and very spontaneously can heal the world, can heal nature, and can actually move us all forward in joy you know, and love. And it's, it's very, very exciting. <laughs> we like to end on some speed questions. So say whatever comes into your mind first. Okay, here we go. What is something you've learned that would surprise somebody about Vedic astrology? <laughs> Everything. It's genius. It's accuracy. It's Mind blasting, mind blasting. That you are that, that you are you are the stars and you are the planets and you are the cosmos and that you are the creative intelligence. You are not just creation. You are part of that which creates. It's, it's mind-blowing. So what is your favorite part of studying and sharing it? That it's mind-blowing. <laughs> that people have such an extraordinary ahas, that it actually helps people get out of the rut, that it helps people know their true talents. I can't tell you how many times I've had sessions with people who are like, I look at the chart and I'm jumping up and down. This is such a beautiful chart. And they have no idea because they've spent their whole life being told otherwise. So to be able to light, light a person up by showing them the light of their own true being is just extraordinary. It's very joyful. Okay, so if you could describe Vedic astrology using just three words, what would they be? I think I know what you're going to say. It's genius. It's unifying. It's mind blasting. It's heart expanding. It's the all. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being with us today, Laura. 
Thank you, Olivia, for bringing into form the archetypes of the cosmos itself and letting us all wear history and aware of the cosmos. Your work is really divine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cleopatra's Bling podcast. For more information on Laura's work, go to lauraplum.com and check out our related Silk Road collection, which is inspired by Vedic astrology. This podcast was produced by Studio Ochenta with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and send us a few stars on Apple Podcast. Until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.